Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at CAMH.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Why didn't the RCMP warn the public on that awful night of April 18th, 2020, when a heavily armed lunatic was on the loose in rural Nova Scotia? Why did the police not issue an emergency alert to every citizen with a smartphone to be on the lookout for a shooter driving a replica of an RCMP cruiser? If only they had issued a warning, several people would very possibly still be alive today. So why didn't they? The reason is simple. It's because they didn't know. That's what the RCMP said right from the start. That it was not until the next morning after the initial shootings that Lisa Banfield, Gabriel Wartman's common law partner, emerged from the woods where she had been hiding all night and told the police that Wartman was disguised as a cop. Once they knew, they did tell the public, in a tweet, that the gunman may be driving a vehicle that looks like an RCMP cruiser and may be wearing what appears to be an RCMP uniform. But prior to that, said RCMP Chief Superintendent Chris Leather, quote, we did not have all those details. 
That was what the RCMP said a few days after Canada's worst mass shooting in modern history. And that's what they say today. Well, the RCMP is lying. Journalists have long suspected that they were lying. It's been known from the start that a series of calls were made to 911 as the first shootings occurred. And at least one of those callers said afterwards that he told the dispatcher that there seemed to be an RCMP officer in an RCMP cruiser outside of one of the homes that had been set on fire. But could he have been misremembering that? Emotions must have been running so high. How reliable was his memory of that call? How could we be sure? Well, we are now sure. Recordings and transcripts of not one, but three 911 phone calls have been leaked to the press and published. They are chilling and they are damning. Three different eyewitnesses told the authorities that the shooter was driving a police car. One of them identified the shooter by name, and another identified him as a denturist. Those three calls to 911 came in over the course of just 25 minutes, starting at 10.01 p.m. That was 12 hours before the police finally warned the public that the shooter was disguised as a cop. And two of those callers were murdered by Wartman minutes after making those phone calls. The last thing they did in their lives was to give this information to the authorities. But the authorities failed to use that information as they might have. And more people died. And then the RCMP lied about it. The reporter who exposed that lie is Paul Palango, an author and a former Globe and Mail editor who came out of semi-retirement to report on the port massacre for McLean's and for the Halifax Examiner. But neither of those publications is where you will read or hear those 911 calls. Palengo reported his bombshell scoop for Frank Magazine, Atlantic Edition, a controversial gossip publication that long ago split from the other Frank Magazine, its better-known Ottawa cousin. And when Frank Magazine, Atlantic Edition, broke that story last week, well, here's how that went over. Publication of the audio of 911 calls made on the night a gunman began his killing rampage in Nova Scotia has today sparked outrage among family members of the victims and others. The content of the calls, published online by a Halifax satirical magazine, also raises questions about the RCMP's narrative about what happened that night. Families of those killed during Nova Scotia's mass shooting say hearing partial recordings of three 911 calls made that fatal night is devastating. CTV News has not independently confirmed the veracity of the recordings, and CTV has chosen not to air the audio. Frank Magazine posted the 911 calls online and transcribed the recordings in an article. The focus of the coverage from CTV, from the CBC, and from the Toronto Star has not been on the collapse of the RCMP's official narrative but on the supposed irresponsibility of Frank Magazine, on the many condemnations of Frank Magazine, on the trauma that Frank Magazine is causing to the families of the massacre's victims in their decision to publish the 911 calls. There are growing demands that Frank Magazine must be investigated and even prosecuted for running the story, although no one seems to be clear about exactly which law they broke. Today I'm going to speak with reporter Paul Palango about what really happened with the RCMP and Gabriel Wartman. But before I do that, I am going to talk to the publisher of Frank Magazine, Atlantic Edition, Andrew Douglas. Wait for it. 
This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Jessica Darling, Neil Excel, Karen Jerzecki, Graham Schnarr, Erica Belisle, Stacey Seymour, Danielle Raza, and Dylan. Hi, I'm Dylan, a business development coordinator in Toronto, and I support Canada Land because I believe journalists know what's best for their industry and more journalists need to run their own organizations. I think Canada Land's a great example of that, um, so I happily support them every month. Hi, Andrew. Hi. So the RCMP says that you've shown a disgraceful disregard for murder victims. They said what you did is heartbreaking to both victims and to their own employees at the RCMP. The uh, Mass Casualty Commission has condemned what you've done publishing these recordings. We are extremely concerned for the privacy of those affected by the content, especially the child involved, they said. The RCMP has said they're investigating you to see if any laws were broken. Three municipal councillors have said that you've crossed a line of decency and respect that should never be crossed. The justice minister in your province, Randy DeLore, said that his department is also looking into whether there should be an investigation for breaches of privacy laws for what you did. And Andrew, while you and I are speaking, a petition denouncing you might hit its goal of 5,000 signatures for members of the public. Uh, It's at 4,770 now, filled with comments like, this is disgusting, fuck Frank Magazine, this is just wrong. What do you have to say for yourself? Well, it sounds like we're on to something, doesn't it? First of all, the RCMP, it's not a surprise that they would come out denouncing this information because the RCMP looks terrible in these 911 calls. These 911 calls proved definitively that they knew Gabriel Wartman was driving around in a police car shooting people between 10 and 10.30 on the evening of April 18th, 12 or 13 hours before they told the general public about it. So it's not a surprise that the RCMP would come out swinging at a news source and wrap themselves in sensitivity and, and caring for the victims and their families when if they really cared for the victims and their families, they would have come out with that information hours sooner and saved who knows how many lives. Regarding some of the families who are upset, of course, we understood that when we first listened to this audio, that it would be heartbreaking and for some of the families to listen to again, which is why we made a point of contacting the lawyer for the victim's families, Rob Pinio, and said, listen, this is what we have please go to some of the families, including the Blair family. Let them know what we have. We don't want them to be hit unawares by this. We would even be willing to let them listen to what we have uh, before it's published. We could talk to them, you know, anything like that. But at the end of the day, we decided to publish because this is the very definition of what's in the public interest. You say that this makes the RCMP look bad, I think you might be understating it. I think that what you publish proves that they've been lying. Yeah, I mean, uh, they've said from the beginning that when Lisa Banfield, Gabriel Wartman's uh, common-law girlfriend, came out of the woods where they say she was hiding all night at 6.30 in the morning, that this was where they definitively learned that Gabriel Wartman was driving around, had a fully marked RCMP car. 
the calls that we have show that they say that he was driving around in a police car. So did the RCMP think that Gabriel Warpman just suddenly at 10.30, quarter 11 at night, decided to end it all and drove into his already burning warehouse uh, and killed himself and destroyed his uh, his last police car? It's, it's really difficult to say what the RCMP thinks we're supposed to think happened. It's easy for me, I guess, to raise an eyebrow to the RCMP saying that their own employees are heartbroken by your mean reporting when it's their own behavior, lies, incompetence that maybe people died for that obviously they have a stake in distracting people from. But I don't want to dismiss all of the criticism that you faced because, as you say, the victims themselves, one of the kids involved, denounced Frank for publishing this stuff, hearing these voices of family members in their last moments. I have no doubt that that is horribly traumatizing. Of course. The victims don't speak with one voice. There are many victims, and there are other victims who are asking the question, why didn't the police warn us to be on the lookout for somebody who appears to be an RCMP officer? And that's a question that the RCMP first lied about, and then they shut up for a year and refused to say anything. And now they're lying again. Yeah, they've doubled down on their story. They're still saying, but they're sort of mitigating their language and saying that they didn't know for sure that he was disguised as an RCMP officer until the next morning. When what we hear in those recordings is that three different callers told them that he was in an RCMP car, that he was disguised as an RCMP. They even told them what his name was. Yeah. They knew the night before. Why did you have to release the audio, though? A lot of people are saying you could have done this if you just released the transcripts. Why did you release the audio? That, that's hard for victims to hear. Of course, you know, one of the main reasons that we wanted to make sure the families had a heads up was in order for them to avoid listening to it. Stay away from it if you don't want to hear it. But we think there it's very important for this to be broadcast because, I mean, you can't get the full feel of it through the transcripts. You can't get a full feel of how heroic that young man was, how together that young man was. A 12-year-old boy, young young man, he's a, he's a boy, but he acted like he was a man and he was calm and cool and collected. He comported himself, I would argue, better than the 911 operator that he was speaking to did. That wouldn't have been clear just on the transcripts alone. I reject any argument that we shouldn't have published that audio. Well, so then why did you remove it? We didn't remove it. It's behind the paywall now. I see. We decided in the beginning that this was going to be in front of the paywall. We didn't want to be seen as profiteering off this. And more importantly, it's the biggest public interest story that I've ever been involved in. We decided early on that it would be in front of the paywall for everybody to see and everybody to listen to if they wanted to. But Rob Pinio, again, the lawyer for the families, came to us a couple of days ago and said, listen, I have a request from some of the family members for you to remove the audio, leave the story and the transcript up, but remove the audio. I said, we can't do that. But then I got to thinking about what we could do to perhaps help the situation a little. And the only thing that I could come up with was putting it behind the paywall, take it off the open internet so people can't just happen, looky-loos can't just happen upon it, put it behind the paywall so only people who are seriously interested in it will uh, will access it. And 
I didn't know how they were going to react to that, but they came back to us and said it was one of the member of the Blair family who Peniel was talking to. And, and he said, yes, we would appreciate if you would do that and please do that. And that's what we did. Leaving yourself vulnerable to that initial concern that people would say, oh, you're you're asking for cash in order to hear these ghoulish recordings, but willing to leave yourself vulnerable to that criticism because this was what the families wanted. Was there a consideration that if you had just published the transcripts, people wouldn't believe that they were real? Yeah, sure. You can't deny, even though a lot of the reporting has been asterisked with CTV News hasn't corroborated the veracity of these audio recordings. I mean, all you have to do is listen to them. If you just talked about the transcripts, people would wonder, where are they getting this? Do they really have this audio? I mean, so now people can't question it. I'll just offer some analysis here. If Frank Magazine Atlantic Edition published a bunch of words and said, oh, we got our hands on the transcripts of the 911 calls and here they are, no media would pick that up. Nobody would be able to independently verify it, and the RCMP wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole. In fact, in terms of actually getting on the record the newsworthy information that you have to offer, that the cops have been lying from the start, that was, I would suggest, only possible by releasing the audio itself. People are trying to tar and feather you right now, and they're asking you these questions. I have to ask you questions even if I'm pretty confident of the answer to them. I can tell you as a news person, there is no question— that you run that audio. It's an embarrassment to me as a Canadian journalist that this is being debated. You know, you have proof that the RCMP have been misleading the public on the biggest mass shooting in Canadian history, and they've been misleading us for a year, and you're being denounced for publishing that proof? That's the first interview question and the main angle to a lot of the stories that are being written. You know, what went into the editorial decision to publish this audio? It's sort of a sad state of affairs in the news business in Canada in 2021 that that question even has to ask. And any reporter with a little gray hair would tell you the same thing. But let's be honest with each other here. We're having a very serious conversation, but a very serious news story, uh, journalist to journalist. But you're frank, right? People feel like they can say what they want about you. If this was the Globe and Mail, they could say, we have verified these transcripts. We're not going to play you the audio, but because you trust our masthead, Frank has to play the audio because otherwise nobody would believe it. And Frank, because it's Frank, gets described by CTV as that satirical rag. The idea that you are simply playing this because it's hot content clickbait and that you're ghoulishly monetizing the pain and suffering of victims is an easy thing for a lot of people to swallow. And that has a lot to do with the look of your publication. It has a lot to do with the history of your publication. I think BuzzFeed said that you published a super racist cartoon, this, this caricature of the activist L. Jones, which you later amended and, you know, I guess removed the original offending cartoon. A lot of the language uh, has been described as homophobic in your publication. It's easier to denounce you than it would be a lot of other media, isn't it? Sure, yeah. And I think a lot of people see us as an honest voice that's willing to go out on limbs that most other media is not willing to go out on. And I think that's what our source saw in us. And the reason why he gave us this material, if Frank had it, Frank would go with it. And they recognized probably that other media outlets wouldn't. I do note that Paul Polango, your reporter on this story has filed stories on this for McLean's, Halifax Examiner. He's been around with his reporting on this story. Mm. Frank's the publication that ran this one. 
Yeah, that's right. His reporting from McLean's and the Halifax Examiner came earlier on. I think his stuff for this first appeared in the Examiner in the spring and in the summer of 2020. But he eventually came to us and we have been publishing his stuff since November, I believe it was. Is that because those other publications wouldn't run him anymore? No. um, With the McLean's uh, situation, he had a behemoth of an article. It was about a 5,000 word article and McLean's was dithering about it and they were wanting to cut the hell out of it. There was argument about what form the story was going to take. And finally, uh, I had struck up a relationship with him. And uh, finally, he said, no, I don't want my story torn apart. Let's run it in Frank. I don't think that this is the time for me to ask you questions that I want to ask you and should ask you about Frank. I don't mean to dismiss the severity of some of the complaints about stuff you've run in the past, but you know, I think this is a day when you have the scoop that has turned a news story. And I, I think it's and I think you're under fire in a way that journalists shouldn't be. But I, I do want to ask you this one aspect of it, which is does the satirical tone, the embrace of, I think, a tabloid sensibility, the uh, douchebag of the week feature, all of these things that I think wanker you know, of you, the week, Jesse, wanker of the week, wanker of the week, excuse me. Makes it a little bit hard to be taken seriously when you need to be taken seriously, doesn't it? Yeah, sure. But I mean, uh, people who have been reading it for a long time recognize that uh, Frank has had scoops from the very beginning in 1987, long before I became a part of it. I mean, there are segments, there are people who say that I don't pay any attention to Frank. I don't understand it. I don't know. It's it's, it's not for me. But people who pay attention to it know that uh, there's good reporting in it, good information in it, even though there's uh, silly silly cartoons and uh, private eye style uh, bubble captions and uh, silly turns of phrase. Everybody used to describe us as the satirical Frank magazine every time we would break a story that got mainstream attention. I mean, it's terribly inconvenient for anybody who wants to um, dismiss this weird-looking publication that people see in the supermarket. A lot of people in, in Ottawa hate, you know, the other Frank magazine for things they've said. They've certainly said things about me. Um, and a lot of people just find the tone off-putting, and I think we just like to ignore the whole thing. But it's it's really inconvenient because both Franks break stories, <laughs> you know. Yeah. It's, it's, it's hard to ignore uh, – publications that break big stories. There seems to be a a pattern of and a place for publications that sometimes are of ill repute. And somehow it seems that those are the publications that are able to do things that others are not. No question about it. I mean, our readers don't expect us to put trigger warnings uh, before and in the middle and, and at the end of every article. They don't expect us to use the same mainstream sensibility that other outlets use, whether it comes to a a local gossip piece or this story that we're talking about today. We go places that the mainstream doesn't go. You know, I think that it's uh, maybe like convenient or or attractive or just necessary to kind of, um, I don't know, try to protect oneself. I've been in the position, maybe not to this extent, of facing a lot of criticism and condemnation. And I can certainly understand, and I think that intellectually there's a very strong argument that I agree with to say, like, look, I'm just doing my job. This this needed to be published. But I am curious how you're doing when you look at your mentions and in a fairly small community, everybody seems to have their pitchforks out for you. Yeah, no, uh, I'm, I'm, it's fine, Jesse. I've been doing this for uh, for a while and I'm used to outrage. In fact, in this story, I would say the outrage and the praise is about 50-50, which is 
a way better batting average than we usually have. The outrage is usually about 90%. But I don't disregard the hurt of one of the families listening to this audio. I completely understand that. And so the lion's share of the criticism and the insults and the go fuck yourself and you shit rag and I hope all your family dies and uh, and I hope I hope we hear you on a 911 call one day. That stuff doesn't bother me at all. But the stuff where a family member is saying how dare you, you know, my my mother died, my my niece died. Um how 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 dare you? I'm reliving that now because of you. I mean that I mean that that hurts. I mean I, I get it. I understand completely. But I also understand that my role here is not to be Mr. Sensitive, and my role here is to disseminate this ridiculously important information that otherwise wouldn't have been disseminated. That's the job. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. It doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer. And it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody Half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does Help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Hi, Paul. Hello, Jesse. Your bombshell story proves that the RCMP has been lying. Why do you think they're lying? Well, from the outset, Jesse, I've seen this as a cover-up. And why did I see it as a cover-up? Because I'm informed by the stuff I've written and investigated for the last 25 years. I could recognize it as soon as it started, what was going on. And uh, so they're covering up something big. I've been told by confidential informants along the way 
that they're covering up things. I've been treated as a conspiracy theorist by the most of the media and some of the public. Uh, but uh, slowly but surely, I'm sort of unraveling this cover-up. You know, that whatever it is, we don't know, but there's something big they're hiding. There's a pretty obvious explanation, isn't there? Why don't we just go Occam's razor with this? Uh, why are the cops lying about when they first knew that Wartman was impersonating an RCMP officer? Because they fucked that up. Because uh, maybe the 911 operators didn't really make much of that detail. Or maybe if they did pass that detail over to the RCMP, the RCMP were embarrassed to tell people that there's somebody impersonating an RCMP officer. And because of that, maybe people lost their lives. Uh, incompetence. Why, why should we ascribe to malice what could be more easily explained by incompetence? Because you've got Occam's razor wrong. Mm -hmm. You know, the conventional uh, wisdom about Occam's razor is the simple explanation is obviously the, the best explanation. But really, when Occam conceived that philosophy, which he'd borrowed from others, it was actually the reverse of that. If you're trying to tell a story and there's too many tentacles that don't fit, you're not really telling the story properly. There's something else going on. You need a, a theory of the story that simplifies it. So it's a little different than what you're saying. And in this story, if you accept that they're just trying to cover up this initial mistake and they're embarrassed, well, that doesn't fit with everything else in the story that has been left sort of swept under the rug. Like what? What are the tentacles? Well, that doesn't explain why they didn't attack the scene, You know why they lied about it at the beginning. So they, they said, oh, we were down there sweeping, we did this, this, cleared people out of the house. They didn't go down for three hours to rescue those kids. They didn't go onto that road till the next day where 11 people were murdered, but they pretended they were doing something else. They uh, didn't set up any roadblocks. Even when they knew he was active and in a police car, they never did anything to get in front of him. So how do you explain that through, the, oh, they're embarrassed about this simple mistake at the beginning? You can't. There's something else going on. You know, the whole reliance on Wortman's girlfriend's story that she came out of the woods at 6.30 in the morning in this improbable, hoary story, and she told them he's in a police car and da-da-da-da-da. Well, why did they buy into that story? Why are they accepting that story? Why is she not talking? That's not explained by anything in the, the simple theory, oh, this is Occam's razor. The simplest explanation is the best. No, there's too many other tentacles that can't be explained. And that's what I'm following, and that's what I'm trying to sort of corral. Well, the incompetence explanation, it could potentially account for those early failures. But I want to dig down a little bit more on this question of his partner in the woods for the night. Uh, people might not be familiar with why there's so much skepticism about her story there. And you have been called a conspiracy theorist. In fact, recently, the Globe and Mail talked about how a lot of the speculation about what the RCMP knew, I think they said amateur sleuths are the ones who are on the internet trading theories about that. Well, I don't know if that was meant to implicate you, but it turns out that whoever was speculating that the cops knew more than they're letting on was right. Whether you're an amateur sleuth or a professional investigator, why are you having trouble buying the official RCMP line about his common law partner spending the night in the woods? First of all, the first person she went to at 634 in the morning, and you got to realize it was zero degrees out. She was dressed in a spandex top, yoga pants, no shoes and socks, no gloves, no coat, no hat, nothing. 
She says she was outside for eight and a half hours and hid in a tree hollow or the root of a trunk in the forest. Well, you're barefoot. The forest there is just covered with rocks and uh, moss. I could find no trees that would fit. How would you find that tree in the dark? She had all her fingers and toes at the end. She came through the door and Leon Jodry said to her, what are you doing here? Gabriel hates me. And she turns to leave. He ushers her in. And then he tells the police, I don't believe her story. I'm a woodsman. She wasn't out in the woods. She said she was perfectly clean. You know, one of the things, Jesse, that really stands out that were just released lately, and no one has covered, not one person has reported on it. In Lisa Banfield's story, she says, uh, we had a virtual party the night before to celebrate our 19th anniversary. And, the, and as the tale goes, uh, the people on the other end of the line in Maine uh, made a comment that next year you should have a committed party, that's their words, for uh, your 20th anniversary. Well, deep down in one of the court documents released recently, there's one paragraph. And in that one paragraph, it states, an FBI officer in Maine went and checked all that story out and, quote, unquote, could find no proof of a virtual party. So what are we actually talking about here? The speculation has been that Wartman, largely based on this large cash withdrawal he made at a Brinks outlet. Uh, That's one data point that people found really curious, who goes and withdraws money at a Brinks outlet. And that's consistent with how RCMP informants have been paid in the past. And the other data point is that he had some interaction with the cop that was ascribed to like, what was it, a traffic check or traffic violation that makes no sense to a lot of people based on where it happened. Those are the two points that I'm aware of arousing suspicion and lending to this theory that he was working with the RCMP. They're certainly interesting things to consider, but they're hardly conclusive. Well, there's more going on than those two things. It's looking at what's going on in the background around that. After the Brink story came out, one person came out and was quoted in the Toronto Star as saying, as a banking expert, that, uh, oh, this is a normal practice going through Brinks. I can't find anyone who's ever done it. I've talked to people in the security industry. They said, I've never seen that happen. But if you look at the background of the person who was telling this story and used it, came out of the woodwork repeatedly to tell the story, is an ex-CSIS agent. That's the person that's being relied on by the media to shoot this story down. You don't have any reputable people in the banking industry saying this. There are other things going on. If you look at the circumstances of what was going on with Wertman, you have to understand he wasn't just a dentist. The key data point, again, that has never been raised, that has been ignored in all this by the media, is that at one point, early on, the police put out a search warrant, and in the search warrant, they blacked out one word. They said they were seeking guns, ammunition, and chemicals, and something blacked out. The blacked out thing was grenades. How do you know that? Because it's in the court documents. Mm-hmm. I reported it, then it was finally released in November or December, and the word grenades came out, among a bunch of other stuff about Lisa Banfield, and it was pretty well lost in all the reporting. So you've got to ask yourself, there's a witness who told the police, and the police report this, that Wortman had two cases of grenades that he smuggled from the United States. Well, who has grenades? Who uses grenades in this day and age? Why would a denturist have grenades? And if you look at the search warrants going into outlaw biker investigations, Search warrants for arrests in Fairview, in Halifax at the Red Devils Club, in New Brunswick, where Hells Angels and Red Devils are arrested. One of the things they're looking for are grenades. 
So why would Wirtman allegedly have two cases of grenades and they're looking for bikers having grenades? That suggests to me that there's something else going on here. So it's one of two things, Jesse. Is Wirtman working with the biker clubs? Did he come into conflict with the biker clubs? Was there some sort of revenge there? Or was he being used as a, an informant or a police agent to infiltrate the biker clubs? Or thirdly, was someone else near to him, a confidential informant or police agent, investigating him? And he was about to go down, and that's why he went crazy. Or is there a fourth explanation that we couldn't possibly consider because we don't have all the information? Paul, what distinguishes this conversation that you might hear on lots of other podcasts of two guys throwing around theories about what this might mean, and this looks a little bit suspicious, and the word grenade shows up in two different places, so there must be a connection, is the fact that you just proved something. And the difference between speculating about something and proving it is what journalism rests on. Should you even be publicly contemplating these theories? Should I be publishing your speculation and contemplation of these? Isn't the work to go out and find out what happened? I'm working on a number of levels. You know, my investigation from the beginning is trying to defeat the theory that there's some sort of special relationship between Wortman or people around him and the police. And I'm looking at the other side on what the police have done and what they're covering up about their own actions. And I've used those two things sort of to drive forward and uncover things and, and sort of, uh, you know, like prove, prove that the RCMP lied about the initial things that happened. When you say it's speculation based on documents, you know, you and a number of journalists in this country have not read all those documents, have not interpreted them, and they're so afraid of this notion, oh, you're going to be labeled a conspiracy theorist if you do this. Well, guess what, Jesse? If you're going to do anything like this, you have to have an operating theory of what's going on based on the facts, the available facts, and the inferences from those facts. So I tried to defeat those. I haven't defeated it. I'm actually proving my case as I move along. Paul, what you're saying is that you're not out there trying to prove a conspiracy theory correct. You're trying to defeat these theories. You're, you're just as interested in falsifying a theory as you are in verifying. Yeah, from the beginning, I've said, I'm looking for someone to prove me wrong. And every time I do that, I find more evidence to prove me right. That's how it's going so far. We're at the stage now where I don't think there's any way to go back because I think I've proven there's a prima facie case for a cover-up. Here's why I'm running this. The commission that has the job, the official body that's supposed to be looking into this, has denounced you for revealing the truth about the RCMP's lie. Right. These are the people who, if we're going to go not to this uh, so-called conspiracy theorist, Paul Palango and the scurrilous Frank magazine, but we're going to go to the authorities here. Well, they're the ones saying that you shouldn't have told us that truth. Right. Don't you find that ironic that everyone has argued from the beginning, we want transparency. The RCMP says we're going to be totally transparent. The commission says we're going to be a very sensitive. and We're going to do this in a, a trauma sensitive way. We're going to get to the bottom of this. And as soon as you show them transparency, they're saying, holy shit, hide that. We, we don't want that. That's not what we wanted. Well, that's the bona fide truth. And so when you say, well, it's up to the commission to do this, well, have you even asked yourself, why is the commission, which is supposedly independent, siding with the RCMP assistant commissioner in Nova Scotia when they should be saying, wow, this is really something we've got to look at? Because we don't know if that was going to be released to the commission or not.
So part of the problem is when you have journalists saying, oh, well, you know, leave this up to official sources. The problem is you can quite clearly see in this one story alone that there are serious problems with the independence of everyone involved. Everyone is working together. And that should be, you've got the police, police services, Department of Justice, lawyers, they're all on the same page. There's no checks and balances inside the system. The politicians are all going along with it. The bureaucrats are all going along with it. And there are serious issues here that have to be looked at. Paul, when you say everybody's working together, you sound a bit loopy. No, I'm getting this from police sources. But I think that the evidence bears that out. I don't know if they're working together in concert in some sort of conspiratorial sense, but in terms of the messaging, when CTV says, oh, this satirical magazine did this terrible thing, and the Globe and Mail talks about uh, online conspiracy theorists and amateur sleuths, and the commission that's supposed to be looking for the truth of this decries you for what you're doing, and that's consistent with what RCMP are saying, I don't know if they're working together, but they're all kind of on the same page. There's no instinct for accountability or for getting to the bottom. They're deferring at all points to the official line and the official narrative. So you have media basically saying like, uh, oh, well, this is a domestic violence story gone bad. The original narrative of the RCMP, which I've disputed from the beginning. And that was a conspiracy theory. That's based on interviews I had, people I talked to, but overcoming this narrative is almost impossible. And even as I'm changing the narrative and showing that there is a cover-up, everyone is still sticking to that and calling people conspiracy theorists. It's almost like a notion created by the powers to be to stop investigative reporting. Because as soon as you do something outside the official narrative, if you don't follow the official narrative, you're a conspiracy theorist. I don't follow the official narrative. I stick to the facts. I investigate. And I use different techniques to find out things. And if you're going to label me a conspiracy theorist, so be it. I'm proud to be it because I'm proving my story as I go along. Well, the proof is the thing. I mean, if this is about labels that are supposed to tell us something about credibility, I place my faith in the evidence itself. I think the credibility is earned when you bear it out with facts and reporting. And I think that you have earned that. I think that at this point, of the various different organs and efforts to figure out what the fuck actually happened with this atrocious tragedy, so far you're our best bet. That's your Canada Land podcast. If you like what we do here, uh, please support us. We rely on your support. You can click on the link in the show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. It's really easy. Email me at jesse at canadaland.com. I read everything that you send. We are on Twitter at CanadaLand, and our website is CanadaLand.com, where you can listen to a new episode of Commons this week. Their new season on real estate has been fantastic. They also have an episode on the port massacre that is well worth your time. Also, check out The Backbench, our new politics show. It is finding its stride, and I'm finding it just like chock full of information that I did not have. And I really like the people on that show. This episode is produced by Tristan Capicione with Demalola Oname. With special thanks to Jonathan Goldsby, Arshi Mann, Sharice Sucharan, and Jordan Cornish. Our theme music is by So Called. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at CFUV.ca. If you like this show, please support it. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land, and this is about you. 
You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 